Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 40, Better Histories. Well, welcome to History Against the Grain. We want to start by just offering our solidarity to the Asian American community after the recent Atlanta killings. It's just, I said this in my, in my Asian history class uh, last week, that the number of times I've had to get in front of a class and then talk about one of these mass murders um, in my 15, 16 years or however long it's been. It's just, it's too much. It's too many times. It's really, I mean, obviously tragic, but just it's so tiresome to keep having this happen again and again and again. Um, and then we're, we're recording, you know, soon after um, the recent events in Boulder as well. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to comment. I don't, we don't know enough about what's going on there, but you know, it's just this this mix, and we've certainly talked about this a lot. This mix of of white supremacy, and I think there's you know a, a bit of uh, ignorance and misinformation, and and violence and stupidity and cruelty and lots and lots of guns. It's such a toxic mix, and and um, you know, I, I I don't know exactly what to say, but it's just it's so sad to to keep having this happen and keep having to have these conversations because um, it just doesn't seem like we're doing anything about it still. Yeah, I know. I think that's one of the many frustrations, right? You know, uh, is this, this kind of a Groundhog Day effect of, of sort yeah. of a scene uh, that you don't like, you know, just uh, repeating itself. Uh, yeah. I, it reminded me a little bit of the, the Vonnegut line, you know, from Slaughterhouse. We talked about Slaughterhouse-Five a few episodes ago and, mm-hmm. You know, he was trying to write about the Dresden bombing, and at one point he says, uh, "There's there's nothing intelligent to say about a massacre." You know, um, and I, right. you know, and I and I, and I feel that way. All, all we can do is, as you suggested, is express, you know, some kind of, um, you know, empathy and and support, and hopefully generate a critical mass politically. You know, of of some kind of you know sane. Uh, you know, response to gun violence, uh, but right. uh, you know, that that remains to be seen. So, uh, I but I know what you're saying too, Josh. You know, as as how many times have have we in the last you know decade, five years even, uh, been faced with yeah. walking to a class, you know, the day of or the day after some calamity, some you know horrific violence, you know, only to to be scheduled to talk about you know something. Well, look, I'd never say we talk about things that are inane, right? You know, but maybe I'm supposed to go in and talk <laughs> about America and the jazz age or something. And it just yeah. seems far too incongruous uh, to actually launch right into that. You know, we've been dealing with, with some terrorist attack here in the United States, you know, some, you know, wanton yeah. gun violence or something. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, my uh, Jenny is a high school. My wife, Jenny, is a high school teacher, a English teacher here in the East Bay or South Bay area, rather in, in uh, Cupertino and many of her students, the, the demographic uh, at Cupertino High, you know, runs first, second generation uh, immigrant 
kids from China, Japan, Taiwan, uh, India. And uh, so mm-hmm. to, compared to, to many other demographics in the country, it's, you know, it's, it's strongly um, reflective of that c- community, right? And so right. as I hear her face that same dilemma all teachers face, you know, the day after, what have you, uh, mm-hmm. of trying to deal, you know, with the emotional and mental health of your students before you just, you know, throw yourself back into, um, you know, whatever content thing you were going to teach. And, and it's, right. you know, incredibly poignant, you know, cause, because kids are honest and they'll tell you how they feel about it. Uh, they're unguarded in ways that, you know, we learn to be in our adult years. Uh, so, uh, yeah, just a, you know, real sad feeling about it. Yeah, and I, I, I mentioned white supremacy. I, I do should also mention just the the patriarchy and misogyny mm-hmm. that's always wrapped up in this this stuff as well. I mean, the the number of these mass murderers who also have histories of domestic violence is well documented at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, I mean, again, just just such a, a, a tragic tragic moment, and and definitely fitting in with this larger um, uptick in in violence against and harassment of of Asian Americans. Not just Asian Americans. We're seeing similar things happening in places like Australia sure. as well. Um, so just again, solidarity with our Asian American friends and colleagues and neighbors, and um, you know, I just I I'm just already dreading the next next time this happens because there there seems to always be a next time. But maybe we, like you said, maybe we can get some kind of political will to get something done, um, so we don't have to keep having these these conversations. Yeah, and I, you know, I suppose there is a kind of um, natural, uh, you know, tendency here for us, for you and I, uh, in this podcast in particular, to, you know, we're we're trained as historians, right? You know, and the first thing I tell my mm-hmm. students, you know, when what does it mean to think historical? What does it mean to be a historian? Well, if somebody hands me something, you know, a, a piece of news or a work of art or, uh, you know, something scribbled on a post-it. It doesn't really matter. I mean, the first thing I'm going to do when I, when I look at it, you know, is think, what's the context here? You know, what, what am I looking right. at in that sense? And, uh, you know, it could be watching a movie on TV. You know, how many times do you sit down to watch something on TV and you find yourself getting on your phone to look up the information about who the director <laughs> was yep. or, you know, whatever, right? You know, and... Uh, uh, so it's a natural kind of response of our training, I suppose. But, you know, we had already been talking about this idea of better histories and uh, how the stories we tell can make us, uh, you know, can can put us in a place emotionally in terms of our mental health, uh, in terms of our, our clarity, our, 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 even our moral understanding, you know, of, of where we are and how we got here. And, and that really is the theme for today's episode, this idea of better histories, you know, so even with something like Atlanta or, or Boulder, you know, I almost can't help myself, you know, by virtue of, of my training, you know, to think of, you know, sort of where is this coming from, you know, in other words, yeah. and, and what are the stories we tell about it? And we, you know, we made the pitch on this show for calling things by their true names. And, you know, we were talking beforehand, you know, that, that often what, what happens, these things get reported as a mass shooting. Well, you know, that's not a that's not an accurate label. This is killing. You know, this is dying. Mm-hmm. This is grievously injuring. You know, shooting sounds like something you do out at the trap range or something, you know, as a kind right. of sport. Uh, 
So I think, you know, getting out of that kind of gravity that the gun lobby in this country has asserted, you know, in terms of how we depict these things uh, or what we call them, you know, this isn't this isn't some Wild West movie, you know, or some six shooter, you know, is going to save the day. This this is just wanton violence and killing. And, and until we, I think, consistently frame it as that without deference to those other lobbied interests, you know, we're going to have a hard time getting our minds around what what it is we're seeing. Yeah, I, I liked what you were saying about this. Maybe this historians need to contextualize because, you know, that's, I think, the strength. And one of the reasons I, I think, you know, many of us feel the need to, after events like this, go in the classroom or in this case, the Zoom, um, and, and talk about it is because we have a unique set of, of skills and knowledge to take these things that seem like they come out of nowhere and, and make sense of them. Um, and that's, you know, t- really ties in with what we're now entering as our second year of the podcast. The first year of the podcast was heavily based around um, critiquing a lot of the, the storytelling devices used by historians and historical thinkers over the centuries, uh, deconstructing the way history has been uh, written and told and understood. And what we want to really try to do and, and, and emphasize in this now second year of the podcast uh, is how we construct better histories in the stead of those that we've, we've now de- deconstructed. What would a better history look like? You know, whether it's just uh, in our fields specifically or, or just in general, what are the tools? What are the, the, the methods? What are the kinds of stories that will hopefully create a, a saner, uh, less violent um, world in which we don't always have to have these conversations or so frequently have to have these conversations mm-hmm. because we'll be a healthier society and healthier people and healthier as individuals. Uh, you know, at least that's my optimistic well, yeah, take. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, as, yeah. I, you know, as I sometimes tell my students, I'm sure you do too, you know, it's that old canard about well you know you got to learn history so you don't repeat it well clearly you know that that's that's not very helpful because you know we're capable of repeating all kinds of things to our detriment uh, even though we know full well uh, that they're bad for us so it's not it's not that it's it's that you gain a certain clarity perhaps a certain you know say moral clarity on on where you've come from with this uh, so that you have perhaps the best chance, if, if not a perfect chance, but maybe the best chance to make some kinds of, of effective resolutions, you know, whether they be political, legal, mm-hmm. economic, personal, moral, you know, in other words, it's it's that old idea to forget the past is to remain a child. You know, I think it's usually Cicero, the Roman orders quoted, to forget the past is to remain a child. And I think I like that bit better, you know, really, because the purpose of remembering, the purpose of, of knowing you know, uh, of, of memory, uh, an accurate memory, is to give ourselves some kind of useful perspective on what we may want to do next. And, and I tell you, you know, it's our, uh, our spiritual godfather here on History Against the Grain, Mr. Walter mm-hmm. Benjamin, uh, from whose, uh, you know, famous work we've taken the title for the podcast. Uh, once again, I think uh, Benjamin has something to say to us. You know, he says, the current amazement that the things we are experiencing are still possible. And he said in the 20th century, but we'd extend that now to the 21st century, that they are still possible. You know, that somehow we're amazed by this is not, he says, philosophical. This amazement is not the beginning of knowledge, 
unless it is the knowledge that the view of history which gives rise to it is untenable. That the view of mm -hmm. history which gives rise to it is untenable. So if we're still, you know, uh, reacting with amazement to these things, then we might want to seriously consider the, how the stories that we tell ourselves continually set us up to be surprised, to be amazed, to be shocked, but not to actually provide us with a, the kind of requisite clarity to take effective action. At least that's how I understand uh, Walter Benjamin. No, it's such a it's such a profound idea, um, such a profound quote, and um, it, it reminded me of something else I, I read in this past week. Um, something by a, a NYU historian who I've probably quoted before, Nikhil Pal Singh, who you know you mentioned forgetting and um, you know th that idea of, of living in maturity. But I think there's an extent to which the fact that that you know this stuff comes as a surprise to people still, right? That these sort of sorts of things, these sorts of events. Um, you know, in, in, in Benjamin's own time, people be, you know, at least uh, pretended to be shocked by, by what was occurring is because of the act of forgetting is not always, it's sometimes intentional, I guess yeah. I'll just say that, that there's, there's value in forgetting. Uh, there's a famous quote by the uh, French uh, scholar Ernest Renan, who, uh, who talks about nationalism. He has this quote that, uh, that the nation is made up of people who have things in common. Mm -hmm. But also, who have forgotten? Forgetting is that forgetting is the uh, crucial element in the creation of the nation. Mm -hmm. I did that from memory. I'm not sure if that's the exact quote, but 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 that's that's kind of the the, the idea. And Renan, by the way, is a real piece of shit, and he's uh, uh, <laughs> Amy Cesare is uh, quotes him uh, without using his name, and and it sounds like a quote right from Hitler. He's that white supremacist. But yeah. but nevertheless, you know what are you saying about nationalism is um, is pretty profound and. When Nikhil Pal Singh says the problem of disavowal forgetting, as Renan observed, um, is who's able to, or allowed to forget and who is compelled to remember, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. that, that essentially we experience history differently. And, and some people, particularly those within the power structure, those with privilege, one of the privileges they have is that the, the past can seem as if it is just the past, something that, that uh, had happened already. Um, and something, therefore, they don't need to think about or worry about. If you think about, you know, for instance, the, the debate over reparations um, for, for slavery, um, you know, what critics of reparation will say, well, that, that already is in the past. We can't fix things that happened in the past. But what, what Singh is, is, is suggesting is that for other people, that it's not something they can do quite as easily, that the past is still very much around them at all times, that they, the, the way they experience the present essentially, is through the lens of, of this past that still, as Mark says, weighs on them mm -hmm. with the weight of the Alps, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we want to make sure that, that not only does no one forget the past, but that within the power structure itself that we, we um, understand that the past is not something that's just gone away, that it still does um, very much affect who we are, how we act, and how we organize our society. Um, and the, the better we understand that, the better we can start fixing this stuff, I think. Oh, I totally agree with you, Josh. Uh, and, you know, I was thinking about um, something I'd read similar to you. Uh, a different author, Paul Connerton, uh, who back in the 90s and early 2000s wrote a couple of books on this issue of, of memory and forgetting. Um, in fact, the book in the 90s he published was called How Societies Remember. 
And mm-hmm. I, I thought he made a good point. You know, he said the, the problem with forgetting is that you don't know you've forgotten. You know, in other words, how do you how do you right. give yourself an honest appraisal of what you're not properly regarding or remembering, you know, for for the sake of the kind of moral clarity that we're talking about? And and he says, mm-hmm. well, one way you can measure that is that when these things happen, how how surprised do people act? How, um, you know, uh, amazed or astonished, kind of like Walter Benjamin was saying, you know, if you find yourself yeah. acting as if this took you by surprise, then it's probably true that the stories you tell have deliberately or otherwise buried or erased, uh, you know, the fundamental problem that is at the root of, of what you're now surprised about, you know, in other words. So if we tell ourselves stories in this country, and the great mythology of America, for my money, is the story of the West. You know, as I mm-hmm. live down a couple blocks from the, as I've said before, the Winchester Mystery House right here in San Jose, which was uh, built with the fortune of the Winchester Firearms Company, that if we tell ourselves story, the great mythology of the West as a kind of triumphal historic tale of, of you know, the Colt revolver, the Winchester, um, you know, rifle, etc. Uh, and then we act surprised in a... Uh, you know, a country awash in in firearms mythology, uh, you know, then that's a pretty good indication that we've buried something. You know, we've we've misplaced or forgotten or otherwise shelved. You know, or I guess as therapists would say, you know, we've uh, subordinated or put it in our subconscious or you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, so there there there's one measure that you're not remembering correctly is that when these things happen there's a kind of uh, almost uh, maybe taken by surprise you know sort of response you know from certain sectors um but you know we're, we're past that point now are we we're not we're not surprised and so what what you know it remains for us to do then is to well tell better histories for our part you know tell better histories and and part of that is rejecting as we have been doing, you know, this has been this, this past year is, is really trying to place a focus on some of the problems of, of the old stories. And one of the, one of the things we've seen and, and we've remarked upon a lot is, you know, this idea of objectivity or neutrality. Um, I, I mean, part of the problem is that when you critique these old histories, uh, you get accused of, of politicizing history or something like that. Um, you know, and the assumption there is that these old versions of stories are the right ones. And then when you come along and say, hey, everybody in this history is white, isn't that seem a little off to you? They say, no, 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 you can't politicize this, right? That this, <laughs> this is what happened. Right. Um, and it, it I, I came across something from um, in the L.A. Times, actually. It was an interview with, with Robin D.G. Kelly, who's a UCLA professor, historian, um, really remarkable historian who's written a lot about the African diaspora and race and um uh, I, I swear this will be the last time I mention Amy Cesare. I, I try to mention him two, three times an episode, but uh, Robin Kelly wrote the uh, the introduction to to discourse on colonialism, at least the, the more recent translated uh, version of that, which is just a remarkable uh, uh, description and in, in, uh, in history of, of the negritude movement, which Cesare had, had constructed. And basically everything I've ever come across from Robin, Robin D.G. Kelly has been brilliant. Uh, but he, he's interviewed in the LA Times um, and, and the, the thing that he said that just that hit me the hardest and, and, and stood out to me the most, he says, we need to practice something that's even better than objectivity. And that is, as you know, critique. 
Critique to me is better than objectivity. Mm-hmm. Objectivity is a false stance. I'm not neutral. I've never been neutral. I write about struggles and social movements because I actually don't think the world is right and something needs to change. Mm-hmm. And that, to Beautiful. me, that's, that's like a rallying cry. Yeah. That's, that's a, a, you know, a mission statement. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, we, we want to go forward with, with that kind of view. I think we've, we've had that view, but we want to definitely go forward. And as we think about constructing new histories, thinking about the past in new ways, and making the past relevant to the present, I think that's, that's the, the point we need to start mm-hmm. from, that the world is not right, something needs to change. And you know, as much as his history can help that happen, that's what we want to do. Yeah, that's a, that's a great piece, by the way. And we'll post that on the episode uh, page, the, uh, the piece from the LA Times with um, Kelly. Uh, and I agree, you know, this is a guy we should be listening to because almost everything he writes or says is, is thoughtful and, um, and worth our consideration. And, and we, I think, have detected that there's something afoot, you know, uh, certainly since George Floyd, uh, but but perhaps you know even going back a bit farther to uh, Ferguson, um, you know over the last decade uh, and various moments in this country that there there is a kind of uh, maybe sea change going on. I don't I don't know. It's too early to tell. But and with, without false modesty, I think we would align ourselves with it, wouldn't you say? That this idea of the old canard of objectivity. You know, or, or even yeah. neutrality in, in scholarship and writing and journalism, you know, has served us very, uh, very poorly. And so there are people uh, increasingly, it seems to me, scholars, journalists, others speaking up, you know, about the, the greater need to call things by their name, uh, their true names, that is, uh, to not confuse, uh, you know, objectivity or neutrality with, with truth telling. You know, let alone with, with moral with moral clarity. So what, one of the things we want to do is, you know, lay out maybe some basic principles going forward for what we think then a history built around these ideals, you know, might look like, might encompass. And, and we're going to make it our task to not only draw in, therefore, histories that we've both encountered, which we have been, uh, you know, influenced by or found to be compelling in these ways. But we're also going to bring guests on uh, to the shows we've done who are actually doing these kinds of things, you know, who are writing, you know, pieces that that reflect this effort to create, you know, a new basis for historical storytelling and historical understanding, what we're calling today uh, better histories. So, uh, for you know the remainder of this this segment, you know we thought we would at least establish some of maybe what will be um, you know what uh, what would we want to call them, Josh? You know key themes, core principles of better histories. Yeah, I mean organizing principles. Uh, are, you know our mission statement, as I was kind of suggesting with Robin Kelly, this is the mission statement for the podcast, which we've probably stayed in various ways before, but. This is our, our starting point moving forward about how we want to think and present um, and write about and talk about history. Yeah, and as you've often said, you know, we, we spent much of, of last year, uh, you know, taking apart, disassembling, uh, deconstructing uh, the traditional forms, what have become the traditional forms of historical narrative in our time um, to look at them in their component pieces and to see why they don't uh, answer the moment, you know, why they don't do better by us 
in the lives that we live. So we want to now move from that and, and we'll still obviously, you know, uh, revisit these things, but but to put forward a kind of con constructive, you know, view. And I, and I don't want to suggest, therefore, that anything we're going to say here is entirely original or even original at all. You know, hopefully if we're doing our jobs, we're bringing the best of what we've seen that, that people have already undertaken. A scholar like Kelly has undertaken um, and hopefully creating some kind of synthesis, particularly for our listeners who are teachers. Uh, let's say yeah. maybe, uh, you know, secondary teachers or K-12 teachers or, or community college uh, professors, you know, because the task is always to try and stay on top of the scholarship. And it's not it's not easy. So if we can do any kind of service in that regard, you know, of trying to bring some really fresh, innovative, insightful work to the podcast, uh, then we do that with the idea that, hey, if you're out there teaching, you know, feel <laughs> feel. Uh, what in entitled feel free to use this material yeah we are but vessels <laughs> well you know we're advocates for sure i mean you know in yes. other words but but and the reason i mention that is because too often particularly in k-12 you know there are these straight jackets you know we've had uh, high school teachers on you know i think of elise and kyle and others and you know, where, where you know, there's a, a kind of tension uh, or even inertia, you know, in trying to bring new materials into the classroom via the many channels that are set up to kind of obstruct you, you know, whether it be administrative yeah. or curricular or what have you. So uh, testing. Yeah. I mean, our, we're going to endorse down to our last podcast uh, breath. Are we not partner this idea of of, you know, intellectual and academic freedom. And, and you know, it's too important to uh, to be tied up in some kind of, uh, you know, standards uh, straitjacket or standardized testing straitjacket or something. You know, we, we need these stories to circulate for sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I'd written, because uh, we were thinking about doing uh, something like a HAG uh, companion volume that would help teachers with this sort of thing. And we'd written a piece last summer thinking about U.S. history. You know, our first episode was about basically retiring the U.S. history survey. That's the nice way to put it. <laughs> uh, and to uh, to begin promoting new kinds of, of courses uh, uh, in its place. You know, the kinds of courses that you would take, say, uh, you know, as a junior in high school or as an eighth grader, you know, maybe uh, in community college or even, um, you know, at the university as a freshman survey. And one of the pieces we uh, produced in, in sort of thinking through this, I'll just read now, it's, it's fairly straightforward, a history, you know, in other words, what would this look like? A history that explains who we are today in the Americas, uh, let's say North America, in the fullest sense, and how we came to be who we are. That means we, by the way, in the fullest sense. Right. No more, um, you know, sort of, you know, inside track for one privileged group or another. But in the broadest and most integrative sense, who we are, no privileging any longer or centering of narratives on national or nation state stories, no hit and run histories. That is, you know, where you mention, say, Native Americans at the at the beginning of the textbook, but, you know, never come back to it at any other time. So no, no hit and run histories, no kind of token histories that way. African peoples in the case of, of you know, an American or Western hemisphere story, African peoples are introduced uh, before slavery, 
let's say, trans-geographically, mm-hmm. in other words, across the broader space of the Atlantic world and of, of Africa itself. They don't just magically appear as slaves, as it were, you know, at the point of Jamestown, Virginia. Um, you know, uh, and, and then within the story, you know, taking groups, whether it be Native American peoples or, or, or black lives, and finding them, you know, in all their variety. Again, not, not reductionist history, not reducing these to character tropes or something of slaves or Indians or something like that, always on the wrong side of being vanquished, you know, but, but trying to flesh out would be the full dimensionality of these peoples and their cultures and their lives. Uh, let's see, how about uh, exchange and connection across boundaries? Yeah, we, you know, this is a podcast, a history without boundaries. So let's not be slavish in our own, you know, uh, adoration of the logo map, you know, that, that familiar mm-hmm. uh, imprint um, or brand of the continental United States from, you know, coast to coast, from Maine to Florida, you know, Florida to the Gulf of Mexico, that familiar logo map. But instead, um, be much truer to actually how these histories are built, which are, which are you know transnational um, and 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 across borders. So that when we talk about early Americans, something like New England, you know, we're recognizing that there's no hermetically sealed New England. That New England was tied into a, a wider uh, context of the Atlantic world, as sometimes we call it the Greater Caribbean, and that Barbados has as much to do you know, a sugar colony, uh, you know, in the, in the far reaches of the greater Caribbean has as much to do, you know, with with, say, New England, uh, as does, you know, some Puritan bromide about being a city upon a hill, you know, because that's <laughs> that's the truth. Right. I mean, that's how these right. histories are assembled. Yeah. I, I There's so much that I love in, in, in that. Um, one of the things you were, you were talking about is not doing this kind of drive by history. Right. You know, just throwing in Native Americans, throwing in people of African descent, just, you know, as sidebars to the story or just, and they were there too. Uh, I don't remember if I made this joke before, but the old Gilgan's Island theme song, <laughs> the original one, instead of mentioning pr- the professor and Marianne, it just said, and the rest. Um, and that's always how I, I, I imagine, you know, a lot of the way these histories are done. It's just, or here's the real story and the rest, right? right? And the rest is just, you know, millions and millions of people. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I think it's really important, you know, to to take those various people seriously and engage actually with not with their presence. I was gonna, I, you know, I'm 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 increasingly hate the idea of contributions because it it suggests the idea that you only you earn your place in the story by doing certain things. But um, but the presence of people and engage in that not as a sidebar, not as a drive-by. But as, as something that's fully integrated into the, into the larger story, it, it's so important, and it's something that is important beyond you know the your your, your critique and reform of, of you know this old U.S. history survey. But it's so important for world history. It's so important for for all stories we, we do. Um, but you know, my brother, as a Chinese historian, he he's made a, a big point of actually engaging the presence of of Tibetans and Uyghurs mm-hmm. and the, the various minority peoples in the history of of this thing we call China. Mm-hmm. Again, not as just peoples who are on the fringes, but people who are who are who have always been who have always been there and always deserve engagement within that story. So there, there's so many ways and so much relevance to this idea of of real engagement with with the full stories, the full histories um, that go beyond. And then this person contributed to the story, 
um, and now we don't have to talk about them anymore. But to really understand how the presence of different peoples, the diversity of peoples, um, helps create this this whole thing, help, helps construct this this whole world, um, and it's a it's such a key part of the better histories that, that we want to we want to tell. Oh, you bet it is. I mean, look, you, you mentioned Benno's work with you know Tibetans. Uh, this whole idea of a kind of center and a periphery, or as you said, fringe, is really itself yeah. the product of you know a, a system of power that defines it that way. In other words, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things we want to say about these systems of power uh, and systems of of oppression, you know, whether it be the PRC with respect to the Uyghurs or, or the Tibetans or the United States with respect to Native Americans, etc is that these systems of power are also systems of oppression, but that we have to understand them not as as sort of sacred, God-given, you know, constructs. Uh, in other words, the nation state or the empire or you know, any other sort of analogous kind of, say, political or sovereign construct. These are historical constructs. These are invented traditions. They are imagined hierarchies so that you define something like the fringe well, that's just a conceit, you know, because if we go mm-hmm. and we stand out on those those mesas of northern Arizona, you know, or that, you know, sort of frontier, what, what is imagined as a kind of frontier, you know, whether it be, again, in western China or the western United States, that the idea of frontier itself and here's this idea of primitive, primordial, not yet developed, etc. And and all of that is is just simply predicated upon a certain perspective of power, right? A certain, you know, perspective of narrative power in particular. So, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't any longer accept those terms. Power, you know, we, the stories we want to tell, power should not be privileged in that way, right? Uh, and 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 thus we don't get into that trap of kind of creating these implicit hierarchies of what's really worth knowing and what's otherwise merely on the fringe. You know, there is no fringe. We live on a on a sphere, <laughs> right? right. Yeah, you yeah. know, and it's perfectly symmetrical in that sense. You know, so there really is no center. There really is no fringe. And if we give up those kinds of constructs, which lend such, you know, authority and gravity to these notions of, you know, of movement and, and frontier and encounter and, and all that kind of stuff. If, you know, if, if we give up that and adopt a kind of multi-perspective, you know, um, view of historical movement, you know, then we're, we're less likely to um, what to continue um, you know, giving credence to the claims of power and and uh, including the power to oppress. This is something we were talking about the other day, but the definite article matters. You know, that that's, I think too often history is, is presented as this is the story. Um, and we need to be more open to the idea and more, I think, more explicit about the idea that what we're, tell, what we're often telling is a story. Um, and it's not, you know, the only way we can tell the story. It's not necessarily... Um, the most encompassing, but you can tell a bunch of stories that together equal something better. Um, it's really hard to tell these stories because, as you said, you want those multiple perspectives. You want to have, um, you know, uh, all these different voices there. And, you know, again, the kind of master narrative that uh, used to be very popular in history, it's harder and harder to do those kind of master narratives. So I do think that it's just really important to tell a bunch of stories um, without privileging 
you know, one viewpoint, as mm-hmm. you said, uh, without privileging the power structure. And, and the end result of that will be, um, you know, a fair, more equitable, um, more, more accurate history uh, because it includes the voices that were there, uh, not just the voices who were in power. Yeah, that's well said. You know, I was thinking about when Benno was on the program a couple times and he was talking about, you know, what it was like, that sort of the topography, the landscape, you know, of, of Tibet. And there's, and I forget what he called it, there's a, I don't know if it's a Himalayan kind of escarpment or, you know, um, basically, you know, where, where, where those great mountain, those towering mountain ranges meet the kind of, you know, the plains of, you know, uh, yeah. west uh, Western China or something that greater Greater Tibet, greater sometimes Tibet, called. You know, there there's yeah. such a distinctive kind of environmental and 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 topographical, uh, you know, sort of sense to place right of geographic place right. and you know so so whether it's in you know uh, China on what would otherwise according to those narratives of power represent some kind of frontier or fringe if you're standing in that spot you know not not only are you fully in the center of of that story you're, you're not at the fringe of anything you're at the center of something there you know but you're also given that a very different perspective on what is usually touted as the story whether it be the the nation state story or you know what have you so one of the things we want to do going forward is we want to we want to talk about place you know we want to we want to mm. visit you know the mississippi river basin you know in the gulf of mexico or or central mexico in the yucatan you know or the again the the southwest and the mesas you know how about the colorado river josh you know um and the hydraulic system you know, that was met right. there by native peoples and how they worked that that delivery of water. You know, we, you and I were talking about California the other day, right? Uh, with, mm-hmm. you know, California is not even really, I don't think you can, you can begin to understand certainly the modern history of California. I mean, by the last 100, uh, 150 years of California without understanding this business of, of you know, hydraulics, you know, of, of, of environmental, plans, you know, uh, and and the redesigning of landscapes to mean, in California at least, the transfer of water where it is to where it otherwise isn't, you know, before you even start talking yeah. about, you know, other more traditional kinds of political narratives. So getting, you know, hewing close to the landscapes and the environment, taking advantage of the amazing work that has been done by scholars of the environment, including environmental historians, you know, this this all goes into it. And once you do that, you know, once you, you divest yourself of having to stand at a particular place facing a particular direction historically and then initiate a narrative that will take you in some linear progression across that space, you know, from in America's case, sea to shining sea or in China's case, from Beijing to Tibet or, you know, in the, in the history of the British Empire, what, from London to India or something like that. You know, yeah. once we get to that, that kind of unilinear, you know, directional um, perspective you know, to, to divide, divest ourselves of that, we, we give ourselves a much better chance of understanding the really important connections, I think, and perspectives of, uh, you know, of this global sphere of ours. Yeah, so it's it's really important, uh, that geographical understanding and, and, and sense, um, because, you know, these national boundaries, you talked about the logo map, but they, they, 
they draw such deep furrows on on our understanding of 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 the world, right? They they you, we've seen those those world maps so often. We've seen you know the map of the United States so often with the states drawn in, and we come to think that those lines have some kind of natural existence, right? That they should they exist because they should exist. But I, you know there really is a value to to looking at the the topographical map, right? And understanding basins, understanding you know, uh, river valleys, understanding, you know, these, these, these gulfs, because you, you come to understand that it's often, you know, those geographical elements, those topographical elements that uh, define connections. You know, the, the, a good example is just thinking about the Mediterranean basin, right? Mm-hmm. And, and thinking about the societies that uh, surround the Mediterranean basin historically and, and how unsuitable just thinking of Europe or Africa or Asia are for kind of understanding that that larger world, right? This is Fernand Bordel, uh, you know, writing about the Mediterranean world, but but um, you know that all those societies on that Mediterranean basin, whether we we would place them now into in these concepts of Europe or, or Africa or Asia, I mean, those societies in and around the Mediterranean had far more in common with each other than they did with people to their south, people to their east, people to their north, um, and, and when you try to understand history through these constructed geographical uh, you know, designations, it tends to obscure more than it enlightens. Um, and so, you know, that example, the Mediterranean, um, uh, you can think of, you know, so many different examples uh, across our, our globe, you know, maybe give us a better design for, for how history should be practiced and get us to, to get us away from national uh, boundaries, state boundaries. I mean, even, even the continents, obviously, are constructs in many ways. And the more we can get away from that, the more we can see what was actually happening, the better those stories will be as well. I don't know. As a kid, I learned that Europe and Asia were two continents, didn't you? <laughs> Didn't separate. Yeah, yeah. The dividing line, the Ural Mountains, obviously uh, separate them. Yeah. Okay. So here's what we want to do. I mean, this is just laying some of the, you know, the framework. Um, we're going to move into our next segment here. We're going to talk about a couple of different pieces we read this week, uh, one of which is going to reflect uh, let's say the the uh, <laughs> the lesser valued story, maybe uh, for what we're trying to do, and another one is going to reflect uh, something that we think is is more vital and more uh, you know rewarding. Uh, and so, yeah, let's take it to the next segment. Okay, friends, so we're going to throw another segment to game at you uh, and have a little fun with, but but also try and connect to some of the, uh, you know, themes of storytelling that we've been talking about. We call it good story, bad story. Uh, and it basically relates to things that Josh and I have read, uh, either that, that previous week or have recently come across that we think illustrates in one way or another you know, these, these, these divergent paths, if you will, of storytelling, one that we think is productive and beneficial and vital for the world we live in, and one, uh, not so much. In fact, let me hmm. define the bad story category 
according to what I like to call the UG factor. Are you familiar with that, Josh? That's a that's yeah. a that's a technical term, can... the UG factor. And so, if, you know, uh, on our five point UG scale, the one I'm going to tell you about right now tops out at a five. Okay, and this mm. was a book that was uh, scales, yeah, thank yeah. you. This is a book that was written two years ago or published two years ago called The American Story. All right, there's your definite article, by the way. The American is, Story, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Conversations with Master Historians. Now, uh, full disclosure, I think the reason we're mad about this is because they didn't consult us, right? I mean, clearly we should have been on that list. <laughs> but once we see the list, you're going to know why we didn't want to be here. Uh, this is a book by David Rubenstein, who apparently has made his vast fortune in a private equity firm. So naturally, the guy who should be writing a you know, uh, a story called uh, The American Story. Uh, and Rubenstein, what he did is he, he interviewed a bunch of people who write histories. Uh, I, I'm not going to necessarily call them historians. You know, our friend John Meacham, for example, is on the list, right? Gotta, gotta uh, each there. of yeah. whom, by the way, of 16 uh, that he lined up, each of whom would take uh, one kind of biographical character to flesh out the American story. Now, okay, so here's the thing. There's 16 chapters in this book, right? 15 of the 16 chapters feature subjects of which ethnic category, Josh? Um, white as snow. <laughs> 15 of 16 focus on white folks. Amazing how you knew that. 14 out of 16 are which gender? <laughs> this is shocking. I, 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 I didn't want you telling me details about this because I wanted to be shocked in the moment. But 14 out of 16 are white they men. They are huh? white men indeed. You feel like doubling down? 13 out of 16 are powerful white men. And that would include, you know, people like presidents, uh, for example, mm -hmm. we even got a Nazi on the list, Josh. That would be Charles oh, no. Lindbergh. <laughs> but um, oh, no. yeah, there's a chapter on Lucky Lindy. Um, so, yeah. Uh, OK, so these are all the only chapter that doesn't deal with a white male is the chapter uh, by Taylor Branch, uh, who's written uh, three massive volumes on the civil rights movement dealing with uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and the civil rights movement. So apparently the publisher told Rubenstein, look, you got to get at least one black guy in there, right? Mm. And that's the uh, apparently the quota for this kind of uh, American history writing. Uh, so that's what you got. You got a bunch of, you know, white dudes being profiled by historians that, and here's the shocking part, themselves are also a bunch of white dudes white dudes yeah. and mostly male that's right of the 16 featured authors guess how many of them josh are white 15 Bzz, false <laughs> we should have played an no. over under <laughs> all 16 <laughs> oh, <laughs> to man. the best of my ability oh, no. to determine all 16 authors are white uh all of them male except uh, oh, I didn't check oh. on Gene Edward Smith. That That's a, a, a gender uh -oh. fluid name, so I'm not sure. But uh, Cokie Roberts, the famous historian Cokie Roberts, <laughs> who writes a chapter on the founding mothers. 
who then I'm guessing without too much trouble are also then white women married to Mm -hmm. powerful white men, founding mothers. Okay. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Doris Kern's good one has oh, to be in she, there, right? Oh, uh, sorry, right. Yeah, Doris Kern's uh, also... Well, okay, so the the uh, the fraction just improves slightly. Uh, Doris Kearns writes about Abraham Lincoln. Of course she does, right? Mm, shocking. Yeah, there you go. Uh, now, I will say this. At least Carla Hayden wrote the forward. Now, Carla Hayden is a current librarian of Congress. Uh, not only the first woman to hold that position, but the first uh, African-American woman to uh, hold that position. So... You know, before I say uh, none of the authors, uh, you know, were, were people of color, I should say that the woman who wrote the foreword, Carla Hayden, uh, is a distinguished uh, librarian and a woman of color. Now, uh, OK, but you get the, I think you get the, the gist, don't you, Josh, mm-hmm. that this is the yeah. American story, a story by white people about white people, I'm guessing for white folks. It's just a guess. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I haven't guess. talked to the marketing uh, people on this. The other thing I want to say about it before I, I, I get uh, give over to you is the uh, fact that the book was marketed uh, by featuring, you know, dust jacket reviews by people like, mm-hmm. you know, Bill Gates, Ken Burns, mm-hmm. oh, uh, Mike Shashevsky, the Duke basketball coach. Oh, boy. How about David? Another famed historian. <laughs> David Petraeus. U.S. Army retired former director of the CIA, and uh, didn't he get caught passing state secrets to his mistress? Or something like serial that? philanderer was not in the description. Uh, okay, but not to be outdone. How about Kitty Kelly? I'm going to test your your '80s trivia. Oh, here. Uh, Kitty uh, Kelly. But per- Reagan's biographer? Well, right? uh, maybe, uh, undoubtedly. But she was famous for doing those unauthorized biographies. I think she did one of Frank Sinatra, if I remember correctly, right. yeah. back in the... You know, so basically, one step above the uh, National Enquirer is Kitty Kelly. She has a review. But, you know, I was a little disappointed. Oh, Hugh Hewitt, the conservative radio host. I, I, I guess mm. the idea here was to show a variety of people, white people, saying nice things about the book that, that spanned that American spectrum of liberal to conservative that is from Sam Donaldson all the way over to George Will uh, a real uh, spectrum of views all chiming in on this book saying nice things about it but the one that I wanted to highlight here uh, was by uh, a woman who uh, I was a little surprised uh, only initially but then you know quickly came to my senses Madeline Albright you know the former uh, UN um, or you excuse me, the United States Secretary of State, right? Mm-hmm. Madeline Albright uh, from the uh, was it the Clinton presidency? I guess they're all starting yeah. to run together on me. Uh, and here's what Madeline Albright. Uh, I remember when I was doing my graduate work in in Washington D.C. I mean, Madeline Albright at the time, you know, was one of the really revered sort of figures. I think she was at. Uh, was it Princeton, maybe, and was international relations and, you know, had a long tenure in governmental service. Here's what Madeline Albright says about the book. The book tells the story of our past, but it can also Mm -hmm. help guide our future. I hope it inspires new generations to learn about our history and defend the democratic values that have always defined what it truly means 
to be an American. Madeleine Albright. Uh, I felt like you maybe put a little extra oomph on our in there. <laughs> so first of all, I wasn't sure like one of those internet, are you a robot? I wasn't sure maybe a robot yeah. wrote that. Uh, but yeah, who do you suppose, Josh, this is the final question. I'll, I'll leave it with you. Who do you suppose Mad, uh, Madeleine Albright means by our? What's interesting, so obviously she means white people. <laughs> she's she's an immigrant, right? She was, she's, born, she's born somewhere in... In Eastern they were Europe, Central Europe, I feel like of, at the time of the Nazis or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's right. So, um, no, it's 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 always pretty clear when you say "our" what what people mean by that. When they say "we," what they mean by that. When sixteen um, so, out of sixteen of the authors and fifteen out of sixteen of the subjects are all white, our yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is this what people Rubenstein just had in his his Rolodex or something like that. <laughs> Is that that's what we call. I can't imagine. Uh, I think it's the it's the he, it's the power and and seriously, you know, it's it's the power of a kind of hegemonic narrative. If you'll allow me that highfalutin academic term, you know, is yeah. that that uh, as Foucault said, you know, when you tell stories of sovereignty, those stories exert their own power, and in this case, the power is over constraining a narrative to include only powerful white men with one. And I hate to say it, but but token non-white person Martin Luther King put in to make everybody feel good about the direction history is going or something. But uh, so, yeah. yeah, for all those reasons, that's a five out of five on the UG factor. What do you got? Well, I mean, it's actually interesting because, you know, there's just this longstanding discussion about, you know, historians aren't doing enough to engage with the public and and. And uh, it's, you know, historians are blamed for this. People complain that, uh, you know, historical writing is too, uh, too difficult to, to read and that uh, historians are not good writers and all this sort of stuff. But you realize that, you know, to the extent that historians are not engaging with the public, it's because this is what is taking up the space where they should be, right? Instead of actually asking real historians to speak about, you know, our story or the story or something like that, they're gathering together these... I don't. What are you historical writers? Is I think I like all them. Mm -hmm. I refer to them not not historians, but historical writers, and you end up with you know these these stories that are meant to placate. They're meant to soothe. They're meant to ensure us that we're on the right path and that it's all going in the right direction, and that from these great figures of the past we can find lessons for our future and all this sort of stuff. And you know if this is stuff on the bookshelves, you're not going to have room for the real historians writing real histories that actually engage with, uh, with, you know, with reality. Uh, you know, <laughs> I was going to make this joke that you said Rubenstein is like a private equity guy. Um, he really takes the equity out of the private equity. huh? <laughs> yeah. It has a different meaning in that context. <laughs> Does it? Yeah. I don't, I don't understand financial yeah, things, yeah, but, yeah. uh, uh, well, you know, I would say these stories are, are created to erase, deceive and deny, you know, I mean, that's the yeah. flip side of, you know, uh, you know, sort of the confidence building, you know, is is that, again, depending where you're standing in relation to these stories, you know, these stories flat out exclude you, flat out marginalize you, put you on the fringe, as you say, you know, to what is supposedly now, according to Madeleine Albright, the real story of who, what, you know, who our story, you know, is. And right. so like earlier when I said, you know, the story of we, I, I meant that pronoun to be 
the most inclusive, you know. That's literally yeah, yeah. yeah you know, and and so uh, this is a perfect example of that power of a traditional narrative tied to sovereignty. These are presidents. I mean, Alexander Hamilton, for crying out loud, is in there. You know, uh, you know thank you, Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, for making <laughs> Hamilton somehow popular among white liberals, you know. Uh, you know, he was a slave owner. Josh, did you know that? Al Hamilton, slave owner. So I, I, I think I told you I'm not allowed to talk about Hamilton. because Yeah, I, I, know, I know, I know, I know. So, okay, what next? Tom Hanks? You know, I'm going after all the sacred icons. But uh, Yeah, I know. You're going to get in trouble Please again. tell me you have a, uh, a good story. I do, and, and it's really interesting how it connects to the one you chose. We didn't choose, choose these in tandem or anything like that, but um, I want to highlight the work of, of a Stanford historian, Priya Satya, who we've mentioned on the podcast before. Um, and what's interesting is that she has actually done a lot of work trying to write for the public. She, she is a, a great scholar. She's written a number of books. Yeah, I think you've read or at least own mm-hmm. uh, Time's Monster, mm-hmm. her recent publication. Fabulous. About, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so she's, she wrote recently in the um, LA Review of Books a piece called Fascism and Analogies, British and American Past and Present. And what's interesting is, you know, I was just talking about uh, these kind of front-facing historians, or at least this idea that historians should be more front-facing, they should be engaging with the public. But after reading her piece, I, I, I saw on Twitter that she would, uh, had this Twitter thread in which she talked about the challenge of actually getting the piece published. Um, it took her four and a half months to, to find a taker. Uh, she had various journals and, uh, and, uh, and magazines in, in England where she really wanted to publish it. And these are left-wing journals in many cases who first said she could, she could publish it and then told her that uh, something fell through. And so she spent this four and a half months watching you know, all these um, less credentialed, uh, and credentials are not everything certainly, but uh, less credentialed um, uh, people who are not experts in, in these subjects getting published across, you know, these various, you know, left wing or at least, uh, uh, you know, more leftist uh, journals and, and newspapers across England. They all were, were white men. Um, and meanwhile, her piece kind of languished in, um, in you know, and in, in wasn't getting published. And she's, you know, very clear that, you know, she just maybe it's something to do with her. Maybe it wasn't written well enough, whatever the case may be. But but um, but she did certainly certainly highlight you know this, this difficulty of of getting in the door when you're not part of that that boys club and she mentions that a lot of the writers are referring to each other um, and and their conversations and when she was told uh, one time that she could publish her piece in this journal but only if she did it as a reply to one of these white male uh, authors instead um, and so it, it it really did show the kind of gatekeeping that goes on and the difficulty even for Satya who is a um, who is a a, a scholar who is you know been teaching at Stanford for 18 years. She has an endowed chair. She's written all these books. She has an agent, um, and it still comes across uh, comes up against those 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 boundaries of who gets to have their voice heard. So the piece then getting into is called fascism and analogies, as I said earlier, British and American past and present. And what she's calling for is the increased use of historical analogies. Um, that it's it's okay to use analogies. You know, analogies are never perfect. Certainly. They're never right on, but what those analogies can do is they can help cut against these more, uh, uh, what do I want to say, these more positive analogies that the power structure often wants to make. You know, the British Empire always wanted to compare itself positively to, um, 
to the Roman Empire. It wanted to compare itself to uh, these great kind of uh, civilization-bearing empires of the past, Roman, Roman Greece in particular, uh, but sometimes even the, the old Persian Empire, which brought roads and in uh, order to, uh, to to Persian Persian territory, and she says we need to look for other analogies. Um, still, too often, she says, um, scholars in Britain and increasingly the United States want to whitewash empire. Uh, they want to talk about the good of empire, and so the the, the part I wanted to read from the piece is um, what she says about this this tendency to still want to present empire in positive terms. She says, apart from a fringe minority. No one touts the prose of Nazism. Since the 1970s controversy around Robert Fogel and Stanley Engerman's time on the cross, respectable scholars no longer enumerate slavery's pros and cons either. We have agreed together that slavery was a moral wrong that cannot be redeemed. The fact that we have not arrived at such a consensus on the British Empire testifies to the success with which older, palliating historical analogies enable, uh, enable to be continually re-legitimized despite the anti-colonial struggles of the last century, that we continue in the 21st century to see people write positively about the effects of empire. Um, and what she wants us to do is increasingly see empire not in the context of, of civilization and progress and, and uh, railroads and uh, you know all these, these, these good things that empire increasingly brought, but to, to compare it to and understand it within this broader history of fascism and slavery. She says uh, later, the scandal of modern imperialism was not Nazism, was not slavery or the rogue activities of particular companies and generals. It was imperialism itself, the enabling context of all these atrocities, a form of rule without consent aimed at coercive resource extraction on the racist presumption, presumption that Europeans alone were the bearers of historical progress. We've talked a lot about naming, calling things by their actual names um, and what she's talking about here is this continued desire to talk about imperialism as something other than a moral and uh, a, a, as a moral wrong, as something that goes against justice, goes against uh, equality, goes against um, you know these ideas of freedom and liberty that that the, the imperial countries themselves uh, supposedly were in such support of, and uh, so it's it's a real rallying cry I think to to talk about empire in in a way that is more truthful. Uh, that gets away from that objectivity lens, the neutrality lens that we were talking about earlier, and to call it by its name. It's not Nazism, it's not slavery, but it is something that should exist within those contexts that in many ways, as she says, and many authors have noted, um, you know, fascism comes out of, of these histories of empire. She talks about these transnational currents, these transnational um, uh, influences that go back and forth such that when the Nazis first create their concentration camps, they, you know, they specifically are mimicking the concentration camps that the British had set up in South Africa during the Boer War in the early 20th century. Uh, that Nazi uh, uh, immigration policies are based directly on American immigration policies, including the uh, Asian exclusion and, um, and uh and then the, the immigration bill of 1923, I think it is. Yeah, the National, the one that, that uh, National really, Origins Act of 24, actually. Yeah, 24. Thank you. Yeah, that was a huge influence on on the Nuremberg laws um, in, in Nazi Germany. So you know, th what what often happens is that the writers of empire want to separate empire out from these 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 histories that are now seen as 
irredeemable. Um, but she doesn't want that to happen. She wants to make sure that does not happen. That empire uh, comes to be seen as just as irredeemable as fascism, as, as slavery. Um, and it's talked about in that way. Uh, because, you know, for her, as, as the daughter of, of Indian immigrants, um, empire is not some, you know, faraway thing, not, some, uh, 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 not, not something that, you know, we can just kind of philosophize about and think about and talk about the good and bad. It's something that's very real to her and very, very personal to her. Um, and, and, you know, that history needs to be written with, with, with that in mind um, as we kind of move forward. I like the piece a lot. And again, we'll put it on the, the web page. And she's a remarkable writer um, because she's taking mm-hmm. really pretty, you know, uh, intricately woven narratives of national and imperial identity. And she's she's unweaving them, you know, and, and, and I was struck in that piece by that we might call the cult of Winston Churchill, you know. Uh, yes. In, in Britain, you know, how stark is the criticism of anyone who presumes to you know, cast a more critical light. You talk about Robin Kelly, D.G. Kelly saying, you know, critique is what, well, you know, you try to critique something like the colonial experience in the British Empire. And, you know, people want to, you know, they, they want to use statues of Winston Churchill to beat you about the head or something with them, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, and so it all gets very stark. And we've seen it's happening in France now um, with what they call Islamofascism, which is really just this kind of umbrella term to mean anything that appears to come from a critical perspective or represent the interests of former colonial peoples. Uh, We've seen it in the United States, of course, in many, many aspects, including the book we just talked about, but also the so-called patriotic history. You mentioned um, uh, uh, Priya Satya's book, Times Monsters, uh, how history Mm -hmm. makes history. And I found a, a quote that here that I think really has bearing on what we're saying, you know, uh, particularly about moral clarity. She says, how we remember the British Empire matters. It shapes how we assess the seeming failures of post-colonial countries to, quote, move on from their colonial past. How we make sense of Britain's efforts to reinvent its place in the world in the current Brexit crisis and how we think about imperial activity today. The stakes, she says, for clearing up the moral fog that clings to imperialism are especially high in the formerly colonized world where the moral case against empire encounters stubborn ambivalence despite the history of anti-colonial struggle. And you know, that reminded me of a, a line she had in the article, Josh, about the one, I think, parliamentarian or somebody uh, mm-hmm. in, in Britain, uh, who, uh, and, and, and may have been Boris Johnson, actually, who said that, you know, any day now, thanks to Brexit, you know, uh, young British men are going to be, you know, sort of gallivanting once again about the world, reclaiming Britain's place in, the, I guess, what the celestial yeah. sphere, you know what I'm talking about there? <laughs> yeah. It's it and, and I think she cites a, a statistic that like 59, 59% of, of Britons still see empire as a positive thing, yep. um, and that's you know that's a failure of historical education, um, and it, it goes back to that the you know I quoted Nikhil Palsing earlier that who has you know who is the privilege to forget and who has to remember, um, and it's very easy for those who are not directly affected by this system to forget the evils of the system, to see it only in, you know, oh, it brought us curry, right? And, <laughs> and, and, uh, 
and all these yeah. things. But uh, but it's not so easy if you're if you're one of these formerly from one of these formerly colonized people or from from one of these formerly colonized groups to simply just forget and to be willing to to you know paper over the right. the evils and the, the destruction destructiveness and the um, you know the the moral outrage that comes out of this and you know Churchill's a great example right. of that. Um, he's not just, you know, racist for his time. You know, she quotes people at the time of, of, of Churchill who just kind of blown away by how racist he is. Right. I think she has one person saying um, Churchill can only see color. Right? That he right. sees nothing else but color. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it does damage the, 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 when we keep, you know, quoting Churchill um, appreciatively, when we keep talking about him saving civilization, all these sorts of things. It does real damage to to our world, um, when we elevate people like that, um, and don't see them for what they what they actually were, which is, you know, morally similar, not as bad as we can maybe make that point, not as bad as, but morally similar to to Hitler. Um, I don't know how, as an Indian, you could see him any other way. Um, and and again, when we elevate people like that, it is um, it's it's a moral problem. It gets in the way of of what Robin G.G. Kelly was was talking about. That something is wrong yeah. and something needs to change. It's not going to change as long as we keep, you well, know, putting busts of him in the White House no, and things like that. I mean, like at that. best, it's a kind of selective memory, and that's a bad thing, by the way. Um, when the selective memory serves to, uh, as she says, create this kind of moral fog, you know, if if we want to, uh, you know, uh, quote Churchill for his stirring World War II radio speeches, you know, imploring the British people to fight on. Well, okay. But, you know, what about the statement she included, you know, where Churchill says, in effect, that the genocide against the Australian Aborigines and the, and the Native American peoples was justifiable because of the populations of whites uh, that replaced them. That is, in other words, you yep. you actually improved the level of civilization. I mean, that's a if that doesn't come out of, you know, if you know, if we did the kind of blind test, you know, who said the following thing? You know, people might want to answer mm -hmm. Hitler or something, you know, but right. it was Winston Churchill. So, uh, look, we're going into the last segment here and I'm counting on you, uh, partner, to lead us out of that moral fog uh, by explaining to our listeners. And we're going to put our credibility where our podcast is today. You're going to explain why periodization is pretty damn sexy. One of the things we want to we want to start doing in the coming weeks is is you know again interview historians have a, a regular scholars on to talk about their books and their work, but also propose some specific things that we can do as historians to create these these better stories. Um, and there's various ways we can do this, uh, both within the, the old U.S. history model, within the Western Civ model, which again we want to torpedo entirely, uh, and within world history as well. Um, in many ways, world history is a better alternative. Um, it's a history that more easily goes across the borders that, that we, uh, we want history to, to expand beyond. Uh, history without borders is, is our tagline. But world history can be, can be tied in with a lot of the same challenges and problems of, of any history. Um, it often is still told through the lens of sovereignty. Um, it is, you know, the old joke is that world history is, is Western Civ plus China. 
which to me is not a joke. I mean, that's a tragedy. If, if that's all it is and that's the only way people see it, then that's, uh, that's a, a, a really tragic, tragic thing for this, this field that I love and, and have spent my life pursuing. So what we want to suggest, what I would like to suggest specifically, is, is some of the things we can do to open up this story, to tell better stories, uh, and to construct a better kind of, in this case, world history. And I want to start at the beginning, actually. Uh, most world history surveys will begin uh, with what we sometimes call prehistory. And I know you've got an opinion. You love the idea of prehistory, right, Chris? Well, thank you uh, for, <laughs> once again, hitting a raw nerve. Uh, <laughs> it's cathartic for me uh, to, to go on the yeah. yeah, But it was my, my friend and colleague, Henry Bargman, you know, who I mentioned uh, on a previous episode from Weber State, who, you know, who made the simple point that, listen, if it happened, it's history. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm not, so not a lover it, of that. It conjures up Ra no, not, Raquel Welch running term. around in, a, in an animal hide bikini in the movie 70 million B.C. or something. You know, that's that's what yeah. prehistory is uh, for Hollywood, I guess. It'd be like having a, a book where like 19 out of the 20 chapters are called the prologue. <laughs> and then the last chapter is chapter one or something like that. I mean, well, so the first yeah, break, I wanna, break I it down shoot. for us. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I want to mention is is taking into account the scale of, of what we're talking about here. Um, you know, if you <clears throat> we're talking about the history of Homo sapiens alone, that history is probably two hundred thousand years, maybe two hundred fifty thousand years old since the first appearance of our species. Obviously, there's controversy about you know what constitutes Homo sapiens, uh, how we define these species, and that sort of thing. But roughly two hundred thousand years ago, and the first thing I want to note is that those 200,000 years matter, right? That those are, those are lives lived. Those are, you know, evolutionary uh, moments happening. There's development. There are changes. There are societies and relationships, thoughts, art, uh, technology, all things we supposedly care about in history. So we have all these evolutionary moments occurring over these, you know, 200,000 years of, of the existence of Homo sapiens. But it's really important to understand that by the time we get to, you know, roughly 70,000 years ago, just to put a, a round number on it, we are essentially who we're going to be in, in so many ways, you know, in terms of how we look, how we walk, um, and increasingly how we think as well. I like to do this little uh, example in my classes when I talk about early hominins, that if you imagine like an Australopithecus, imagine being on a football field and you dress up an Australopithecus and walk him along the far end zone. Uh, nobody's going to, uh, who's watching that is going to think that's a human. That's us. They're going to think there's a monkey wearing clothes walking in the end zone. That's weird. You know, same thing with a homo erectus that, you know, they, they're starting to look more human in terms of their stature, but still their facial and skull structure is different enough that even in modern clothes, people are going to think something weird is happening. Uh, if, even if it's not as clear as with Australopithecus, but if you could go back and, you know, grab buddy, somebody from 70,000 years ago and bring them to that football field. Uh, once you dress them in clothes, and they probably would be pretty confused by this whole process, by the way, and, and, and march them along that, that end zone, nobody would, would, would blink. It would just look like, it would look like one of us walking in that end zone, um, you know, with the same gait, with the same stature, with the same broad appearance as, as any contemporary human. And I think that's such an important point to make, Josh, you know, because uh, we've been poorly served in our popular culture in particular. Uh, a, you know, where something like what traditionally is called prehistory is concerned. Mm -hmm. you know, I was kidding about the Raquel Welch movie. Hollywood got on a bender back in the 60s with 
you know, movies that uh, touch the primitive, right? And prehistoric, yep. like, you know, the Planet of the Apes and, and, and Raquel, Welch's case, Raquel Welch's case, one one million BC was the <laughs> Hollywood movie, you know? Um, and sort of what comes to be kind of stereotypically caveman yeah. m- movies. But what, what that does is, you know, I'm always reminded of E.P. E. Thompson, the great English labor historian E.P. E. Thompson, who talked about the enormous condescension to the past that we often, you know, manifest. That is the idea that if people lived a long time ago, they were proportionally less sophisticated or intelligent as we are today. But in fact, as you point out, we can go back 70,000 years and find, you know, our recognizable selves there. Even something like average height hasn't really changed that much uh, in the in the last 70,000 years. Uh, we have the same biomechanical nature. You know, we were good runners then. Yeah. Uh, we could walk long distances, you know, the way our bodies air conditioned through perspiration and respiration. That sort of thing, you know, was all in place. And maybe most importantly, you know, was that, uh, you know, our big box brains were already pretty Mm -hmm. much uh, set. In other words, whatever we want to say about anything that's happened since 70,000 years ago, we don't want to attribute to the fact that uh, we're any smarter, you know? No, absolutely not. It's it's a a really great point. And, you know, in in particular, what seems to have occurred around 70,000 years ago was the development of our syntactic language, our ability to communicate complex ideas through these various sounds we make uh, out of our out of our throats. Um, and so there you know there's obviously like anything in 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 uh, paleontology and archaeology, uh, there's so much debate about the way this stuff plays out, but it seems pretty clear that from you know potentially seventy thousand years ago, human societies, or at least a particular human society, had gained the ability to get across complex ideas using these vocalizations and that kind of set us on a a new path of at least social development cultural development um and uh and and kind of made those those humans at that point capable of for instance forming into larger societies maybe going from you know 20 people in a group to hundreds in a group uh it probably increased their ability to uh to migrate and so that uh period of language development possibly is going to go along with this period of, of migration when humans begin uh, leaving Africa and, and, and migrating across the globe. Yeah, and you know, I love I love the associated development there of what I would call um, sort of figurative thinking. That is the ability to imagine abstractly. I mean, if we think about language, right? We're talking yeah. about a kind of abstract you know, symbols, vocal symbols uh, that, that convey meaning sort of intraculturally to one another so that if I speak your language and you speak mine, uh, we know we know meaning, right? But then we right. also have that related ability to imagine things then that, uh, you know, abstractly that don't in fact even exist. And archaeologists have found all kinds of things, you know. Uh, Harari talks about uh, the the Stadel lion, you know, the yeah, little so figurine found right in Germany by archaeologists. It goes back to this Paleolithic period, you know, before agriculture. That uh, it has what the body of a human and the head of a lion. Yeah. Somebody carved this, you know, and so we don't know exactly what they meant by it. You know, you think of like things like cave paintings and such. We don't know the exact intended meaning maybe of these images, but we do know that in many cases they reflected figurative images 
drawn from a kind of figurative imagination, an ability to imagine something that, strictly speaking, doesn't exist. And, and as we're going to see, that's going to get us in all kinds of trouble moving forward, just as right. it you know proves to be a kind of evolutionary leap in its own right. Yeah, and, and what's I think important to, to note here, you know, you mentioned the the, the line of is it shot shot shot, <laughs> the, the the lion-headed figurine, we'll just say, um, is that you know it wasn't just humans because there's a, there's tendency I think I'll see students do this that you know with agriculture and with civilization humans can now create culture, but we have so many examples of of cultural development you know, going back tens of thousands of years, whether it's these lions lion-headed figurines that maybe have some kind of spiritual purpose. But some of my favorite artifacts from that deep past are actually musical instruments. And so, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, I like to show my students these uh, images of, of kind of these pale, Paleolithic flutes, uh, these, these old uh, flutes, so these musical instruments. And you just think about the amount of planning, the amount of, of work, the amount of experimentation it would take to take a, 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 a twig or take a stick, to hollow it out, to put the, the holes in the right places, to figure out the, the breath control, to do that sort of thing. And what I always like to point out is that you don't need a flute to survive, right? You don't need to make a lion-headed figurine for survival, right? It doesn't feed you, but what it does help do is create that social cohesion that really separates human societies from so many other, uh, you know, animal societies. We can live in larger groups because we have, you know, flutes where we can play music and people can dance together and they can build up those, that kind of social glue, or they can create art together and create uh, ideas that bind the society together. And all those things that we associate with civilization, or at least many of the things humans had been doing for tens of thousands of years before we get to, you know, or or in in Mesopotamia or something like that, right? There's long traditions of culture. Well, yeah, and we shouldn't, I mean, we don't want to mystify these things beyond the point of, of, of recognizing them in our lives. You know, if, if let's say we don't know for sure, but the shot of lion, this lion headed, uh, you know, human figure could have been the equivalent of uh, what some, some say pro sports mascot is today. <laughs> let's uh, yeah. taking one out of the air, you know, the Buffalo Bills football team or something. Look, I, I may live here and you may live there. We've never met, but if we show up sometime, we're both sporting the Buffalo Bills insignia then we know we got something in common don't we yeah that's a that's a really that's a great point um that yeah these symbols also help define us uh help connect us but i and it's important to point out as well because we don't want to you know idealize these societies as, as you were just suggesting that part of what these symbols also do is they can also mark in groups from out groups right mm-hmm. that those who who uh follow the lion-headed figure might be different than those who follow you know like a ram-headed figure mm-hmm. or some kind of uh, ram thing and so you know in these societies which are still very communal still very um uh, cooperative we do see some of of the elements that later on would become the source of so much friction and tension between and among societies so you know again this stuff is all there it's all part of who we are as humans and um you know eventually it we do see the development of agriculture uh of quote-unquote civilization but those things don't come out of nowhere. They come out of a long process. And they're also not inevitable, which I think is really important to point out. Well, no yeah, inev- yeah. No, no, I want to say, and I, I'm going to give you a, a setup here to finish this thing, is that, uh, you know, the problem and what we're really talking about is how to tell the stories in a way that liberate us, stories that make us, uh, you know, healthy rather than sick, etc., is that if if we understand that by the time we arrive at agriculture, fairly recently in the human past, by the way, as you pointed out, uh, let alone civilization, 
You know, mm-hmm. we tend to think, gee, the Egyptian pyramids, they're so incredibly old. Well, yeah, they're they're about 4,500, 4, what, 4,500 years old. Yeah. But we're talking about evolutionary developments in our species that are 70,000 years old. So uh, we were upright, walking around, running around, doing all these things, imagining, building, you know, for... Well, you know, do, do the quick math on that. That's like, you know, 65,000 years before we, you know, bother to get to pyramids. But what that's going to represent, therefore, is not somehow, you know, a qualitative leap in our evolutionary development as it is a kind of cultural and social choice that will be made in you know reference to environment, changing environmental conditions and other things. Uh, but a choice nonetheless. And so we want to avoid, I think, what you and I like to call sometimes the sovereignty trap, because mm-hmm. by the time we get to civilization, we're talking about, you know, um, governing authorities that claim, you know, sovereignty, that is the, the right to rule, the right to organize society, to impress laws and even military force Um and that these claims that make up what we call civilization and were neither inevitable nor even necessarily uh, the result of some qualitative leap in our evolutionary development. They, they were historical choices. And we shouldn't imagine that living under that same regime today of civilization, that therefore we are not left with choices ourselves about how we want to organize our societies. Because when you read it, and I know you're going to finish with a famous example of, a, of an ancient law code. But when we read those things as somehow inevitable, you right. know, uh, we feel almost as if we're prisoners of that sovereignty trap. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, jumping off what you were just saying, I, the, the real danger is that, you know, every contemporary society feels like they're, they're the culmination of all that came before rather than just, mm-hmm. you know, humans living their lives with still work to do. I mean, I think that's the danger of, of this this idea of progress, this idea of directionality, is you think, well, if there's directionality, then it's all leading to me, right? It's all leading <laughs> to us. <laughs> and if that's the case, then it, it limits your ability to make choices. It limits your ability to see the world in a more imaginative way, to to envision the future in a more imaginative way, um, because we're we're kind of stuck with this idea that that we are the inevitability that that history was leading up to, and we got to get away from that. And you you mentioned the sovereignty trap. Um, which is, it's so prevalent. It's so, it's so hard to, it's one of these things that's so hard to get out of our own ways of thinking and certainly for our students as well. Just an example of this, um, you know, it's very common in, in early world history classes, I assume Western civ classes as well, to use, uh, you know, one of the more famous primary sources in, in world history and that's the law code of Hammurabi or Hammurabi's code called both things or, or you know, these various early legal codes um, and when you look at these legal codes, I, I you know, I, I, I do use it. It's pretty accessible. And, you know, I like to use it as uh, as a way of, of getting into some of the challenges of civilization, right? The, the law codes are put in place because there are problems that need to be solved, maybe. Um, but what students tend to see is they tend to see law codes as a mark of progress, right? That, in other words, there had been instability in their minds, and then law codes are put in place to create stability, Right. And that is uh, that's, you know, kind of reflects how much our students and I think ourselves more broadly have been inundated with the views of sovereignty, that these laws are an imposition of authority on populations. Um, And in their imposition of that authority, they are suggesting things that people are allowed to do, things that people are not allowed to do. They are uh, imposing upon people 
social and cultural uh, limits and 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 barriers on what they're allowed, uh, you know, what is proper and improper. These are not inherently good things, uh, but I think there is this sense that law equals stability. Stability is good. Sovereignty creates laws. Therefore, sovereignty is good. And it's it's um, it's something we definitely need to get away from. And you know, I think it's really important if you do talk about these laws to present them as what they are. In many ways, they're catalogs of the problems of civilization, not examples of the progress that comes with civilization. Such a great example, because if you just read a little bit of Hammurabi's uh, code, you know, it's very prescriptive, right? It's a kind of Mm -hmm. if then, if you do this, then this will happen to you. And it's a range of behaviors, all kinds of things, you know, stealing a certain kind of property from a neighbor, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and you could argue about that, that, well, you know, those codes weren't necessary, <laughs> you know, right. before civilization, because most of the activities they describe, such as property issues, only become salient, you know, once there's property, once there's private property, uh, you know, under a sovereign governing authority, you know, so it's like these things respond to problems that are created yes. by sovereignty uh, and civilization. Uh, and that wouldn't have been necessary, you know, uh, in in an earlier time. Uh, so seeing them as as contingent rather than somehow foreordained. I mean, on that famous stele, you know, that basalt stele, mm-hmm. I think, where is it now? In the in the Louvre, maybe? Or the British Museum? I yeah. forget which one somewhere, of those Somewhere far, it. far. Yes, <laughs> I was going to say somewhere far, far away from when it, where it actually came from. From Babylon, yeah. yeah. Uh, that... Uh, at the top of it, it shows a picture of the king, Hammurabi, you mm-hmm. know, uh, being handed the, if memory serves me, being handed the legal codes from a god figure, you know. Right. And so there was this idea that in the sovereignty claim that laws came from gods through men to be enforced with a kind of divine sanction on people. But, uh, you know, if you if you buy that, then, you know, I got some swampland in Florida I might interest you in. <laughs> so this, this is definitely a conversation that's going to keep happening. Uh, we're going to keep having, I should say, over the course of our, of our future episodes. But it's an example of the way in which we can rethink our frameworks. We can rethink the way we present this material to get outside, you know, the, um, the typical methods of... of um, how we date things, how we uh, mark things in time, how we talk about progress and inevitability and change and development, and to get away you know, more broadly from this idea that um, history is a story of things getting progressively better over time because there's simply no evidence that history has directionality, that, uh, that the closer we get to the present, the better we get. Instead, we have to be willing to look at things in their, you know, in their fullness to see the good, the bad, the changes, the developments, the trends, the stabil- the things that stay stable, stable. And I think above all, to look at history as a history of humanity, of humanity in all its, its guises, in all its forms, instead of just the history of, of the sovereign, of sovereignty and of power. Very solid partner, very well said. You know, that was episode 40, everyone. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. It's a sin when you play into ignorance, another one closing your eyes again, so you don't have to see what's happening, then now, what's going on in these streets, you can't live by what you see on TV, stop sucking a cycle, so we repeat, stop
stuck in a cycle, so we repeat.